This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. The future of hydrogen is here, and Biotech is leading the way by disrupting the established centralized hydrogen supply chain with a new highly efficient model of local production hubs. Biotech produces hydrogen close to demand and transports it via high-pressure, high-capacity storage trailers. Fewer truck trips translates to lower transportation costs, lower emissions, and safer roads. It's the first step in making hydrogen more affordable and accessible today. Visit Biotech.us to learn how Biotech makes hydrogen easy. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who is calling in from London. On this episode of EAH, we are joined by Jorn Helga Dahl, Global Director of Sales and Marketing, Distribution and Infrastructure at Hexagon Purus. Hexagon Purus are global leaders in key technologies needed for zero emission mobility, providing type 4 high-pressure cylinders, fuel storage, and distribution systems for hydrogen, complete vehicle systems and battery packs for fuel cell electric and battery electric vehicles. We're delighted to have Jorn with us today. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at at about hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, gents, it's 2022. It's a big new year for everything about hydrogen. Firstly, how were your guys' holidays? Chris, let's start with you. What did you get up to? I understand that you've, uh, you're have you overcoming some uh, sicknesses, but I understand uh, you had a good holiday. Oh, a very happy 2022 to you, Andrew. Um, no, it was it was nice. I think, uh, like probably everyone, was a bit burned out towards uh, the end of 21, so nice to take a bit of time and uh, decompress a little bit, spend some time with the family. Um, I joined in the proud British tradition, which is getting Omicron, um, although I managed to get out of quarantine before Christmas. So that was a, a good result, I think. Um, what about you two gentlemen? How was life in States? Was it a, a white Merry Christmas for you both? Uh, well, DC uh, has not, it was pretty uneventful on my side. I can't speak for Patrick, but let's see, New Year's Day or the day after we uh, actually got about a little under a foot of snow here in DC, which is a first in the last few years. So it's uh, not a not a white Christmas, but a white New Year. So, uh, yeah, not too bad. How about you, Patrick? Have you been out sledding? No, I went. I went to Colorado briefly, so I did all my sledding there. You know, you got to get the right terrain together, Andrew. But um, no, uh, you know, a, a Christmas day of what sixty degrees ish, sixty three, sixty five degrees Fahrenheit, which what is about eighteen degrees, seventeen, eighteen degrees Celsius, and then literally the day after New Year's Day. As Andrew says, a foot of snow. So we got uh, we got all the seasons over the over the the week. Been an interesting one, but uh, ready and refreshed for for a very busy and active twenty twenty two. Are you traveling at all now? Is this the is this the form? Are we is twenty twenty two going to be the year that uh, we see more American businesses and uh, top flight executives like yourselves doing a little more traveling? Because I think the the hydrogen world it's been quite hard to find too many Americans willing to to rough it and tough it out and brave coming outside of uh, the US? Well, anybody will take an excuse not to go to the UK if they can, Chris. 
I mean, Ooh, to be honest, no. given the weather we've had, I don't blame them. <laughs> it's a fair call. <laughs> no, I, I don't think we're going to see until until the next uh, or this Omicron wave dies down. And hopefully it does soon enough. I don't think we're going to see a huge, huge upturn. But guys, we're getting down the rabbit hole of the negative negative part of the beginning of 2022. How about the exciting world of hydrogen for 2022? What's on the radar for uh, for this year? I've got to put you two straight back on the spot, if I may, and ask, you know, as our resident American experts, you know, what do we all want to know in uh, the UK and Europe is, what is the impact of Joe Manchin's position on the Biden infrastructure bill? And does that mean that we're going to have to wait a little longer for a sexy new hydrogen price support mechanism in states? I will take that a couple of points at a time. I think uh, Biden infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed back in November, but the Build Back Better Act, I believe is what you're referring to, Chris, is uh, stalled, <laughs> for lack of a better term. It does not bode well for the Build Back Better Act as it stands today. Uh, I think you're pretty likely to see a pared down version uh, being proposed in the next couple of weeks. And at the moment, the scuttlebutt on the on Capitol Hill is that uh, the pared down version has a good chance of passing. But I am a little bit more skeptical on that front uh, in terms of the Build Back Better Act as a full package. I would point out, though, that almost all of the uh, conversation and all of the uh, what what is stalling the Build Back Better Act has nothing to do with the uh, hydrogen production tax credit, which at the moment, does enjoy some pretty strong support. So I think it's quite possible we could see the Build Back Better Act fail as a package, but then uh, you would see the hydrogen production tax credit included in uh, energy tax credit extension bills or uh, as a separate vehicle. I don't know. What do you think, Patrick? Yeah, I think that's about right, right? In that there's a bit of a dance at the moment as to, you know, is is the... The Build Back Better piece dead? Is it partially dead? Is there things that can be moved under kind of different uh, different mechanisms or, or different routes, right? And I think to your point, Andrew, whatever way it goes, you know, this is really nothing to do with the, the hydrogen tax credits, right? And it's nothing to do with the the notional kind of positions around hydrogen. You know, if, if anything, that's been enthusiastically greeted, I think. I think we're really waiting to see, Um the day isn't done, but but also, you know, it's definitely going to be slower than perhaps we thought it would be maybe a month or two ago. And, and something I guess to to ask is, you know, do you feel that um, is is hydrogen relatively rare then in the US for a new clean energy technology to have sort of a fairly bipartisan level of support? I mean, I'm just trying to think. You know, I know fuel cells have always had quite a lot of Republican and I think also Democrat support historically in the States, certainly since the Bush era. But, you know, if I think back to sort of early solar and early wind, I don't remember, but I'm sure our more eager listeners might be able to tell me uh, whether they enjoyed a huge amount of bipartisan support. So I, in that sense, I'd be interested to get your view if this is kind of unique or at least relatively rare to have a clean energy technology that's quite widely supported by both sides of the house or the aisle, I should say. Well, I'll take a crack at it, but I'd like to get Patrick's input here. I would say I think we're getting a little little bit ahead of our skis there in saying that the energy tax credits are going to have broad bipartisan support. I think keeping in mind that the context here is still tax. So clean energy initiatives 
in general, I would say have relatively strong, you know, strong majority support, bipartisan support to some extent. But the sticking point here is also though that it's a ta- that we would be talking about a tax credit, right? Which that can be that's a little bit more contentious. So while you might be able to find more bipartisan consensus on supporting clean energy more broadly, because we're talking about tax credits, uh, you might see resistance and not just against the hydrogen production tax credit, but you can see some resistance against tax credits in general from the Republican side of side of things. So I wouldn't say I, I, I wouldn't be comfortable saying it's got, you know, broad bipartisan support, but I think it's standing alone energy tax credits or an energy tax credit bill that included a hydrogen PTC is going to be much have much more robust support than the Build Back Better Act, which does not have very robust support. So that's how I would look at it. What do you think, Patrick? It's, it's, it's a tricky one, right? Because there has been resistance in the past to, you know, the ITC PTC bills and the extensions. Those have come through, but, but you know, there has been pressure, right? I think there is broader support for hydrogen, certainly itself. But I think Andrew's point is, you know, you're going to get some level of, of resistance depending on the mechanism, right? And and there are certain things that are really just kind of outside of the, you know, the resistance isn't about the what, it's a, it's about the how. And that's a dance to be done. I, like, look, I'm not, I'm not a kind of entirely locked in in terms of how how this is all going to play out i don't i don't necessarily have a kind of comprehensive view of it but you know i i think more broadly we do have positive noise around hydrogen right in general and then the question is well how do you get the deal done and the cat skinned right like it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a dance as it always is and whatever mechanism will work will be the one that that kind of gets through the door um I think there is a lot of reasons to be positive and to hope for for an, a positive outcome. But um, yeah, as I said, this is going to take probably a bit longer than we expected. So obviously, guys, it's really exciting that we've got Jon Helgedal, who's joining us today from Hexcom Puris. Jon is the Global Director of Sales and Marketing at Hexcom Puris, a Norwegian-based company, but with operations globally. You know, I, I don't know how familiar you guys are with uh, Hexcom, but they've been really leading a lot of the hydrogen storage projects in, in uh, Europe and recently announced an acquisition with Vistruck, which is a well-known German compressed hydrogen cylinder company. Andrew Patrick, is there anything that you'd find particularly interesting to ask the Hexcom team? Is there anything you've secretly wanted to know about hydrogen storage that you haven't had a chance to ask before? Oh God, yes, always. But um, look, like I'll, I'll say this, you know, We've, we've talked about, especially over the last year, the importance and the criticality now of transport and storage and the challenges that we're facing in that, in that field. It's going to be really interesting to, to get kind of the OEM perspective on how those systems build out, how they play out, what the constraints are, what are the opportunities and, and also just some of the technical aspects, right? About like what offerings, you know, provide what kind of uh, quality or, or, or kind of performance of solution. And, you know, how that will naturally then, you know, build out into the system. So, yeah, I think there's a, a pretty broad space here that, that is going to be pretty cool. Andrew? Yeah, well, as you guys know, hydrogen uh, distribution is uh, something that's near and dear to my heart. So I think with that, I think we should get our guest on the line. Yeah. 
Jorn, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us on the show today. Um, maybe you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, a little bit about kind of how you came into the hydrogen space, um, and I guess what your role actually is at Hexagon Purus. Thank you, Chris. And uh, I must say it's a pleasure to be here myself. I'm listening to one of your episodes earlier, and I think it's a, a nice show. So happy to be here. So as you said, I uh, work with Hexagon, and uh, I've been here in the company, Hexagon Composite, um, starting out in 2014, so well over seven years. But actually, I work today for Hexagon Purus, which is our hydrogen part. Hexagon Purus came about in uh, last December, so uh, a year since we established uh, on the Oslo Stock Exchange as a separate company, spin-off from Hexagon Composite. So this is our, uh, let's say, e-mobility play now. Uh, we focus on uh, hydrogen and as well uh, also battery electric uh, solutions uh, for uh, some of the applications we serve, like uh, trucks. Uh, and I will talk more about that later. Before uh, working with Hexagon, I used to work in the automotive industry, supplier, tier one supplier to many of the OEMs in Europe. Uh, so some years of experience uh, working in sales. Uh, if you want, I can also tell you a little bit more about the company. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's actually the, the, the spin-off piece was quite interesting. And you used the phrase e-mobility platform, but then you said hydrogen. So I'm going to have to just, just push in a little bit there. When you say e-mobility, is it just hydrogen mobility or are there other aspects of the e-mobility space that you're also working in? No. So uh, e-mobility in our mind, hydrogen is also the e-mobility because in the end uh, you turn in this to electric power, right? So uh, you can see hydrogen as any kind of uh, battery if you want. And then the, the context close to the battery and the hybrid solution, hydrogen and battery working together, get uh, you to the most uh, maybe efficient solutions. So uh, whenever it came uh, natural for us to also dive into that space, also with the history uh, from uh, previous companies in Hexagon Composite, uh, like Agility Fuel Solutions, working on a complete uh, drivetrain integration, it makes sense for us to also look into that part. So maybe maybe before we we dive into the the, the deep specific kind of e-mobility uh, platform questions, uh, what's what's the history of Hexagon and how did it come to the the kind of the hydrogen space generally? Yeah, exactly. So it's a good question. So Hexagon Composite uh, started out and uh, listed uh, in the Oslo Stock Exchange back in two thousand, so well over twenty year old company now. But the history of the company is actually even older. Uh, along the route, uh, Hexagon has acquired companies like Lincoln Composite in Nebraska in US, um, Revfos Fuel Systems, um, so several companies with longer history, uh, even going back to the 60s. So the composite techn technology, which is the core of the company, uh, was actually uh, a long-time uh, experience uh, when Hexagon Composite came around. And already back uh, in the early days, we looked at uh, kind of the first hydrogen wave and developed the first hydrogen cylinders, for instance, for the Mercedes F-Class, uh, which came on uh, 2008 uh, timeframe, as well as also storage tanks for refueling stations. So uh, already then we were into the play and um, that was part of Hexagon Composite. And then uh, hydrogen went silent, we all know that. Uh, and then it started to resurrect and uh, I was coming in in 2014, uh, actually to work on CNG, but uh, quite soon moved over to look at interesting opportunities within hydrogen. 
So already in 2015, we started to look on that. And then we had an interesting journey after the 2016. We got Mitsui in on the owner side. Uh, we acquired Experian Energy and Environment in Germany, which was at the time our biggest competitor in type 4 uh, cylinder production. And um, then we started to see uh, the first, let's say, move on hydrogen. Uh, we were involved in the Mercedes uh, GLC, so we delivered to that. And then uh, also the other OEMs were more active looking after hydrogen solutions. We clearly saw that... Uh, there is more than one opportunity. It's ju not just the uh, light duty vehicles and, and uh, storage tanks for uh, stations. So distribution became uh, quite early on and uh, an early mover in our uh, efforts to, to look after the big hydrogen market. So that was maybe the, the first pillar. And I started myself to work on that uh, segment um, back in 2017. So the danger I have here is that whenever someone starts going through the background, I realize we've got a list of questions and I've got like another 30 that I then want to suddenly ask. So it's always dangerous. But let me maybe pick um, two. Um, Patrick's going to hate me, but we'll go with it anyway. So the first one is you mentioned that you previously worked in CNG. And I think this is quite interesting and different markets have different contexts on this. Right. But there are a lot of CNG vehicles in actually the US. There's a lot of CNG vehicles in the UK. Uh, and quite a lot of other uh, countries that are looking at it. And it's often framed as CNG might be the bridge to hydrogen, right? That's the conversation that within CNG industry, I, I hear from people that what they'll articulate. You came at it from a CNG hat and then moved into hydrogen. And if you look at the Nicola story, they came at it from CNG and then moved into the hydrogen story. So what's your take on CNG as a bridge to hydrogen, given that you've had that hat and then switched over? For us, it makes absolutely perfect sense. Because if you look at the storage technology, uh, the composite cylinders we make, it's just the same for CNG and hydrogen. The difference is the pressure. So on, let's say, uh, several heavy-duty applications, you go to 350 bar. Nowadays, uh, the real heavy-duty trucking uh, look at 700 bar. The passenger cars we know look at 700 bar. So uh, the only difference for those cylinders is that we have to enforce them a little bit more. So add on some carbon fiber, but the technology is there. The production technology is the same. So for us, it makes perfect sense to come from the CNG world and go into hydrogen. Um, in terms of gas handling, it's also many similarities. So um, I think it's uh, true to that story. So actually an insight from that, from me that I wasn't necessarily fully picked up on before. So thank you from that actually is that um, the expansion CNG supply chain actually helps to also bring down the costs for the fuel cell electric vehicle supply chain. Yeah. Would... Which is quite interesting. And I'm not sure I'd done that connection before. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that gives uh, a starting platform. We had the opportunity to scale up for CNG. So the scale up in terms of uh, getting the production costs down, we already know. We are at a certain scale now. And if you say long term, the CNG will maybe diminish to a lower level we then can add on to the capacity for hydrogen. So that is still an option we have. Having hexagon composites still as our majority shareholder, they hold around about 75% of hexagon purists. So there is still strong synergy, strong link, good communication. We have a common R&D group for the whole uh, team. So then my second question, and Patrick seen me do this a couple of times, is some of our listeners are very technical. Others haven't got a clue. And that's great because that's kind of what the podcast is meant to be. But we're using some terminology already that I know is going to catch people out, like type four, right? And composites and everything else. So quickly, but in your own words, what is the difference between type one, two, three, and four? 
right? How should people understand what that means when they hear it or they see it written? Um, good question, because uh, as you said, it's not uh, so easy to, to get a grasp around that uh, easily. So uh, simply said, a type one cylinder is a pure steel cylinder. It's commonly used in special industrial gas. You see all the industrial gases in steel bundles, type one, and that's the steel type. And then you move on to lighter and lighter cylinders. Type two is lighter because you can reduce the wall thickness and you overwrap it with some fiber. It could even be steel ribbons that overwraps it. Um, then you move to type three and type four. And I put them together because they are both composite cylinders. But the big difference is the inner liner that contains the gas. So a type three has a metal liner made in one piece. It can be aluminum, it can be steel. Whereas the type four, which we do, has the plastic liner in different plastic materials who contains the gas. So that's the, the difference between the four types. The four types. Useful. Okay. Patrick, I'll stop talking. Do you want to have a go? I was just waiting for your follow-on, Chris, of, uh, of of how these how how you how you're thinking about these cylinders. But maybe maybe to just kind of um, bring us back a little to the the kind of e-mobility space and and the solutions that you're kind of providing. And I know we've talked a little about the battery electric and the fuel cell electric vehicle avenues, but. How did you kind of come to take the approach to to look at both strands? And also, I suppose you know you're you're based out of Norway. There's a there's a lot going on in shipping right now, and probably a few other spaces. So maybe uh, maybe we could hear about some of the the fun and interesting stuff that's happening and how these these solutions apply. Yeah. So um, if we move a little bit uh, to Norway and uh, and see what's going on there, you mentioned shipping, and and I just have to mention that I was listening to the previous podcast uh, where you had uh, Thomas Trunsta on the stand, and um, I just uh, need to know, uh, let you know that actually I was uh, part of the hiring process of Thomas into. Uh, the company Hyon. It's almost like it's a small sector, isn't it? <laughs> so um, uh, a good guy. And uh, we enjoyed working with him for uh, some years in the company Hyon. Uh, as he mentioned in the podcast, he moved over to Wilhelmsen uh, uh, this uh, summer. And uh, also Hyon was repurposed to some extent to work uh, not uh, as a one-stop shop for all the hydrogen solutions uh, from production to the fuel cell but more focusing on bringing the hydrogen gas on board a ship, so the bunkering part, and uh, also repurposed in terms of uh, new owners, etc. But that was um, kind of an early start for us into the maritime and, and the shipping. And uh, we immediately saw that there is an opportunity there to really decarbonize, to make the difference, all the things that Thomas was talking about in this uh, previous podcast. And uh, we didn't, let's say, going out of Hyon on the ownership side there, we didn't do that because uh, we didn't believe in it, but we wanted to focus more on, let's say, what we can bring to the table. And this is actually taking these three back to the to the truck and pure systems, uh, where we talk about the e-mobility and the, the complete um, fuel solutions. So it's not only about the storage tanks, it's about everything integrated from the ship side to the fuel cell. And even we can think of also doing integration work, including fuel cell brought to to us by someone who make the fuel cell. So the the complete integration is one key idea for us, and that's why we started off with a company called Hexagon Purus Maritime, which is also a separate company. We established this back in June this year, and we are now staffing up 
in Norway, because to some extent it makes sense to be in Norway when you talk about uh, shipping and maritime. The starting point, Norway, but always look global. Um, that has been a kind of a mantra for uh, Hexagon. Uh, I didn't mention it, but we are with a global presence already today. We are established in US, uh, Canada, Germany, China, and you can uh, also add some uh, representatives here and there in addition. So a truly global span width. So just kind of piecing this together, maybe, you know, you have this company listed in Norwegian Stock Exchange 2000, but with a previous history involved in various different forms of sort of the broader gases space, right? Sort of, you know, and CNG, hydrogen, various things in between. Uh, quite a lot of mobility focus, right? You've talked about that, right? Whether it's marine or it's transport. Um, and and so quite a few subsidiaries now popping up as well as acquisitions that take you all over the place. So maybe how does that fit as a strategy? What's the logic behind that? You know, why have an integration piece here, a trans a maritime piece here, assets in North America, assets somewhere else? How does all of that and all the different gases fit into the broader strategy of what Hexagon wants to be? I mean, we we'd normally say, what do you want to be when you grow up? But you've obviously that doesn't quite work here. But what is the business Hexagon's trying to be? And, and how do you see those components fitting together? I think it's a kind of a result of many opportunities uh, coming in now uh, with hydrogen. And that is maybe also a difference to CNG. You see maybe more solutions that could be decarbonized with uh, hydrogen. So how do you play that? Uh, you have in the core, uh, as I mentioned, our storage tank, but you want to take part in a, in a larger uh, picture here. And there is a bigger picture. Uh, there is much more to do. It makes sense in many cases to integrate system when you have the, the core component in-house. And how do you do it? You follow the market. So we are a truly global company. So we, when it makes sense to put something up in China, because China has a great uh, plan to, to utilize hydrogen, uh, then we do it. We take our time. We do it um, in a very professional manner. So it's not uh, maybe you said popping up. We say it's a, it's a long uh, duration process. Uh, something is easier to make, like the Hexagon Maritime, where we have some history already. We have done the high on joint venture. And we do this uh, absolutely with uh, with care, but we see the need now to bring these solutions to the table. And we cannot bring it only with organic growth. We need to also uh, build upon something which is good out there already. As an example, we also acquired a company, Vistra, which was maybe the one they were pointing to. Uh, which is the most recent acquisition. And that makes sense in the distribution segment because this uh, uh, company has been our partner for many years, both as a supplier for CNG modules and as a customer when it comes to hydrogen modules. And it's a good match in terms of technology. They have used our cylinders for many years. So uh, in order to bring up that system capacity, which would be an overarching strategy arm to, to go into system more and more, uh, that makes sense. So, so Jorn, just just quickly, what what geographies do you you operate in today? And I suppose you know when we're we're kind of thinking towards these kind of or, organized kind of plan progressions and system kind of planning. I suppose where, where's where's next that you'd like to kind of target for for growth? I think now it's uh, a little bit about uh, the time to let's say develop uh, the growth we have made so far. What we focus on now is on the next steps. Uh, we mentioned previously this year that we have the order to deliver for company uh, Nikola, the Nikola 3 project. 
And there we need to build the capacity further in terms of cylinder production. So that is kind of, let's say, bread and butter uh, capacity expansion programs. So this is something we need to handle professionally within the projects. Uh, so I think that would be, let's say, the short uh, term strategy part, which I can tell about. And then where to grow from there. I think uh, we need to pay close attention to the market development. What we have seen so far now is that uh, compressed gas kind of, um, I would say, wind terrain uh, in terms of it is an easier value chain to establish. You have examples of uh, almost impossible application to use compressed gas, or at least they were seen as impossible to use uh, as compressed gas some years ago. Now they start to, let's say, actually develop uh, compressed gas solution. Uh, where you thought liquid was maybe the only choice. Um, so that is where we see, let's say, and follow uh, closely what's going on. So maybe just picking up on that one. So, I mean, um, if Hexagon kind of has this USP in the compressed gas space, how do you look at a lot of the other storage technologies that are being proposed and mooted for hydrogen? You know, you touched on liquid. If you look at the Daimler proposition, that is a liquid proposition. That's what they're considering. There's also Ooh. quite a lot of people on the shipping side talking about liquid. Um, there's also the solid state discussion. So we've seen GKM Metallurgy come out with their solution, but there are a number of others as well. So, you know, how do you as a business look at those other angles? Are you thinking that those might be verticals that Hexagon wants to also play in and be dominant in? Or do you think that actually where you are already in terms of the compressed space will be the sort of primary space and, and that's where you want to keep your core competencies? Let me put it like this. Uh, to be in the compressed space would keep us busy, uh, for sure. And then on the other hand, we are not blind to other technologies. So we are, are on the, let's say, the constant lookout to, to what makes sense. To our, uh, take a, an example in the maritime, as you said, you will not be able to use compressed uh, for all uh, solutions. So in the longer term, maybe it makes sense to be that uh, hydrogen provider that also include uh, other technologies in terms of storing the gas or the molecules. Well, I was I was just interested to kind of ask, and this is a, a broader question, but, you know, Given given the range of spaces that that you're you're seeing application and and the kind of the, the position you are in the market, what is the kind of exciting kind of unexpected or or what do you kind of when you're looking at the hydrogen market today and how it's evolving, where where are you kind of like this is this is going to be something fun or something really really interesting that that you're looking forward to maybe as a challenge in the space? I think in, right now I'm uh, very intrigued by what's going on in the maritime. Um, from uh, kind of early days when we established Ion and talked about hydrogen, people just uh, nodded their heads and no, that's uh, no way to go. And from today, uh, where we see almost any designers, almost any operators come and ask for what can we do to decarbonize and use uh, hydrogen as a solution or an option. Uh, so this is really now driving a diversity in solutions. Uh, which are extremely fun to, to work with. So I have the pleasure to sit in the board of Hexagon Purist Maritime and to, to see the, this company and the growth uh, uh, coming forward for this would be um, really cool to follow. Besides that, I think, um, of course, you have the, the heavy-duty sector that moves maybe faster now than the light-duty. But I'm 
quite confident that we will see the challenges on pure battery electric, uh, charging, uh, getting the, the power out to the grid in dense areas. Uh, I think we will see some challenges there. So truly believe that hydrogen will be a complementary solution. So maybe maybe just a quick follow on there on the maritime piece. You know, look, maritime is a, a very interesting, very challenging space in general. And, and there's a whole a whole heap of um, kind of use case profiles that you get in it. Where, where specifically are you seeing the most interest for, for hydrogen directly? Because, you know, like, for instance, deep sea uh, vessels, you, you hear an awful lot of uh, talk about ammonia. But there's also been, you know, Maersk launching some some methanol vessels. Where where does hydrogen directly kind of play a space? And and I suppose I, I I'm guessing you're presuming kind of a fuel cell based system as well on that. Fuel cell based system uh, could also be a kind of a combustion solution that could work. Um, for us, it's kind of agnostic. You need to store the hydrogen anyway, right? But what we see as a let's say at least an early mover would be the short sea shipping. So when you have coastal freighters, you have ferries, uh, that type of application, even leisure uh, yachts could be a, a nice application to decarbonize. And we see the interest from all of these segments coming in. Um, you can even imagine uh, fisheries. You can have the aquaculture. So it's a wide range of application in the maritime sector that could uh, benefit from a hydrogen solution. And that makes uh, this segment uh, especially interesting and, and fun to work with. And I think the key bit there, I'm assuming you're maybe tying on a little bit, is also that the fisheries need a lot of oxygen. So if you're doing it for electrolytic, there's also a tie-in to that piece too. Perfect match. So I, I wanted to ask, and this is probably Chris being slightly nerdy, but you're talking about different use cases. I do find this interesting. Um, because you focus on the storage and you're mostly focused on compressed, how do you think about the future of um, actually compression and refueling into storage? Because that, for me, is one of the interesting kind of headache areas, right? Because if I want to benefit from that faster refueling time and I start going to, you know, we see this approaching with planes, right? Trying to do 100 kilos or 50 kilos at speed is really hard without the temperature going up and having issues there. And it would maritime is even harder but even flipping it the other way, if you want to refuel something really small, like the BOC Genie canisters, right, for a hydrogen barbecue or off-grid lighting or whatever, that's not easy either. So how much work does Hexagon do with the supply chain and, and how much interest is there in that kind of facilitation or enabling of the storage solutions that you have? So we have looked at this, uh, <clears throat> especially also from the days uh, working with Hyon, but now also very closely with uh, both designers, operator and uh, companies looking into the value chain. A piece, uh, two pieces of interesting information has come out so far. Uh, one is to look on uh, solutions where you actually don't go to the real high pressure on board the application, because then it makes easier to do exactly this fueling, fast fueling over a short period of time. So that is one key element. And, and then you also get the benefit of actually the lightest the cylinders in terms of weight ratio. So the dead weight of the tank uh, versus the actual payload of the hydrogen gas on board. So that is one thing. And the second thing is that uh, the maritime industry has been looking very closely into the concept of uh, instead of fueling, you just swap the energy. So in terms of uh, containerized uh, storage, you can imagine that you put a full container on board a ship, you utilize it, uh, you run around, and then you come to the port of the K again, and then you just swap an empty module with a filled one. 
And then your f- fueling time would be really short, right? It's just a crane lift and on and off with the container. And we are in, right now into a very interesting project called Vard Zero Coaster, which uh, these details are closely looked at as a solution. And uh, it's found to be very interesting as a concept, as an operational concept. And we have also several other projects looking at the same in Norway right now. So, look, I mean, the question that always comes up, and I think we have to ask it is, you know, if you're on the compressed cylinder side and, you know, you talked about the complementarity with batteries, there is still sort of some people, I guess, within the battery world who don't look at it that way. There is kind of a we should electrify everything and hydrogen's a distraction, right? That you know, Then you get into various debates around that, which we don't want to necessarily do now. <laughs> but um, when we talk about things like replacing hydrogen cylinders from one to the other, I mean, is that in some senses just adding another layer of complexity? I mean, you know, if you talked about the early battery electric vehicles, and I don't mean in the last 10 years, I mean turn of the 20th century uh, battery electric vehicles. That was, you know, took, you took your old battery out, you put the new one in and you go, right? And it's sort of quite funny to see 100 years later, we're still talking about the same idea. Mm. Um, you know, are, are we not just adding additional complexity in when we talk about things like taking a hydrogen storage tank out and putting it back in? Because these things aren't light either, and I'm not sure how many listeners appreciate that, but you can probably speak to it better than I can. They're not easy to just sort of, daintily pick up even the small systems and and just put a new one in. But that's where the Type 4 technology comes in, Chris, because uh, Type 4 is actually light. So you can uh, store and have a kind of dense energy on a lightweight solution with Type 4 cylinders. That's our key benefit, right? So maybe just make that visual for people, right? So, you know, how big, if, if I asked you to hold a Type 4 cylinder... How much hydrogen in a Type 4 cylinder do you think, you know, obviously quite you know well-built man, but how much could you hold? Just give a frame of reference for our listeners. Exactly. So maybe easier for people to get uh, their heads around uh, taking the example of a 40 feet standard ISO container, right? It's about 12 meter long, uh, 2.5 wide meter and uh, 2.7 something high. And within that, uh, with a reasonable high pressure, not the the highest, uh, we have a solution on 380 bar. You have on this 40 feet container, you have 1.29 kilogram. So a bit over one ton of hydrogen. And the weight of that is a 20 ton uh, gross weight. And that, that's uh, within the reasonable crane lift they do, let's say, on a, on a day-to-day basis on the case. And if you were to have the same amount of energy on the battery, it will be heavier for sure. It's a one ton storage in a Type 4 is around 20 tons of uh, you know, crane capacity for the full system. And there's the, and I'm assuming that's 20 plus one if you wanted the hydrogen rather than 19, and then you add the one. Is it's actually 19 plus the one, so 20. It is 19 plus the one. Okay, so, so just again, and final question for me, because Patrick's now giggling and just like, please, Chris, stop. Yep. The final one, I promise. If you were type one rather than type four, what would be the weight delta? Exactly. So uh, similar pressure, similar size, I guess you would be very close to 40 ton and you will only have 300 kilograms of hydrogen if you were to do it in type one. So that tells you exactly how much lighter uh, type four technology actually is. And, and that, that uh, volume constraint is around the, the pressure, is it? That they, they, the yeah, it doesn't make ones. sense to go higher than uh, 300 bar when you talk about uh, mobility applications uh, within steel and type one. That's where the limit is. And we talk about 380 bar today, and that's kind of a strange pressure, but it has a history. Uh, it will take me uh, another 10 minutes or so to explain that. 
But the um, point is that uh, maybe um, when we come further down the road, uh, 500 bar solution, I think, would be bread and butter. Uh, as of today, we still need some of the value chain to, to be more, let's say, competitive and, and uh, more companies to deliver uh, certified solutions to, to have a cost uh, which makes sense on, the, on that li- a little bit higher pressure level. So, yeah, and I, think, and I think when people then see people talking about one town being moved by road, that's where you're back into that type four, really, aren't you? Because that's what you're really saying is, you know, if you've got a gross carrying weight of 29 tons, it's 19 tons of the actual type four container to take that 1.1 ton of hydrogen. That's the the way to think about it, right? I, I, I just have a feeling, Jorn, you're going to get a phone call from from Chris Jackson about something in, in the near future. But um, <laughs> I think given the, the, the pace of change in the space and, and kind of the, the nature of the sector, We've got to ask a kind of a broad question, which goes along the lines of what what else should we have asked you? Yeah, it's a good question because, uh, and this would be maybe Jörn speaking more than uh, Hexagon. So a kind of a personal uh, opinion on, on how to look at this uh, going forward. Uh, I think that we need to see changes in behavior in order to get to a zero emission uh, society. And that goes for uh, every one of us as a person, but it also goes to how to do business. I mean, I think uh, transport on, on sea today is maybe too cheap to be sustainable. So all these kind of new ways to think operation should come hand in hand with new technologies that can be a zero, a zero emission solution. And I think that is uh, under-communicated uh, I think we have seen examples that uh, people try to find a way to be on parity with the old traditional fossil fuel. Yes, it makes sense to, to drive costs down, for sure, no doubt. But in order to really uh, take the last mile on, on decarbonization, you need to think different in terms of how to operate. And we have seen the first signs of uh, operators who have started to think this idea. Of course, that bridge from today's how to do things, tomorrow to do things, how to bridge that, how to, to give someone the, uh, the arsenal to actually uh, go ahead and do it. That is uh, where we need to have a, a focus going forward. I think that's a perfect place to finish on probably, isn't it, Patrick? Yes, indeed. Lauren, thank you very much for, for joining us and uh, yeah, wishing you the best with the future of Hexagon Purus. Lovely to be here and thanks a lot to you guys. This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Bayotech. Bayogas, Bayotech's gas-as-a-service option, provides customers with low-cost hydrogen on demand. Get dependable access to as much hydrogen as you require when you need it. Bayotech produces the hydrogen locally and distributes it via high-pressure transport trailers. Avoiding long transportation distances saves money while minimizing emissions. You pay for the fuel by the kilogram, avoiding high infrastructure costs. Bayotech makes hydrogen easy. Visit bayotech.us today to get low-cost, low-carbon hydrogen delivered on demand. All right, guys. So I think you guys had uh, quite a wide-ranging conversation. So 
let's uh, let's see what stood out to to you, Patrick. Uh, what was what was the highlight or one of the highlights of your conversation with Jan? I think there's a couple of really interesting pieces here. You know, uh, number one, I, I, you know, most of us are kind of reasonably familiar with Hexagon in general as a as a storage provider, and you know, the, as as Jorn kind of mentioned, you know, they've been doing kind of this this work and and in the related spaces for for quite a while. To see the transition then into the, the mobility space, to look at kind of these distribution systems for kind of the, um, you know, I think they, they were, he was saying about, you know, moving between kind of, uh, BEV systems as well as, as direct hydrogen systems, right? So that's a, that's a pretty interesting kind of evolution and advancement, but also, you know, them spinning out as a separate company is interesting as a, as a kind of a, you know, hexagon group kind of emerges, right? Um, but I think if, if and I, you know, Chris, I'm probably robbing your thunder here, but the bit that I think really was, was quite nice to do and quite interesting and probably insightful here is, is the conversation around this, the cylinders themselves and some of the, the kind of the dynamics that you see with, you know, these, these type four cylinders versus type three, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I'm, I'm interested to, to kind of see, you know, when we look back on this, you know, how some of these systems kind of evolve or grow or change or how some of the weighting changes. Maybe Chris, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I thought one thing that uh, Yon did really well was that he helped to sort of just give people a little bit of a sense of, you know, and I usually ask these questions because I think, um, you know, for people not in the hydrogen space, it's, it is helpful. You know, what does type, you know, one, two, three, four mean and, and sort of making some of that a little bit more practical. Um, you know, it, it is really hard for people to process and understand what is actually involved in the storage and transmission of hydrogen. And I think the point that you need a steel line cylinder that weighs in at, I think it was roughly 19 tons to transport a ton of pressurized hydrogen, uh, you know, just gives you a sense for how difficult it is to move hydrogen as a pressurized gas um, if you want to do so at volume or to do so efficiently at volume. Again, you always have to treat these things in relation to what the alternatives are. It's not simply enough to go, well, that doesn't sound very efficient. If you then point out, well, if you were trying to move a fully charged battery, it wouldn't be particularly attractive. You know, if you tried to move ammonia, ammonia is toxic. So if you spill it, you have issues there, yada, yada, yada. A long, you know, I think basic point is always a trade-off. But I thought it was good to sort of just, you know, make it relatable and understandable. And I think the thing that comes out of the discussion that we had with Jorn was, in some senses, we talk often about how technologically mature a lot of the hydrogen technologies are. And actually, pressurized hydrogen cylinders really are at that apex that, you know, I'm sure there is some innovation, but you don't get the impression from talking to a lot of people in the space that the innovation really is going to be around moving to a thousand or two thousand bar it's more going to be around cost and weight reduction for the type four cylinders that exist at the moment which obviously has an impact and a very positive impact but it also kind of shows in a sense that we're not waiting on a huge amount of new breakthrough innovations there and whatever improvements we will get are likely to be sort of incremental they could be materially incremental but they're still incremental as opposed to a fundamental sea change so i think you know Patrick, maybe putting it back to you it seems to sort of re-emphasize the point that for some of the larger mobility applications that people are talking about, there doesn't appear to be on the horizon a very obvious, um, you know, pure pressurized hydrogen solution that will do, you know, maybe something that reforms ammonia into hydrogen and then you store some as a buffer on a plane or a, 
I don't know, or, or rail. Maybe there's a sorry, not plane uh, on a ship or on rail. Maybe maybe there's something interesting there. But the the overwhelming impression I kind of get from that is, you know, we're going to see really nice cost reductions on the smaller to mid-sized transport side, but the larger scale transport side is not going to be a pressurized story. The weight the weight numbers are just so clearly against it. Um, do you think that's a fair set of comments from me? Appreciate that was quite a lot of rambling in that. <laughs> No, like, look, I think it's a fair, a fair reflection of a challenge that we have, right? And, and to take a ship, for example, right? One of the reasons you see, you know, hydrogen referenced, particularly when we talk about, um, coastal vessels or inland waterways or ferries or things like that is because, you know, obviously compression is a challenge. You know, liquefaction particularly is obviously expensive as well, right? So, so you're kind of balancing here a couple of different system efficiencies, but, you know, for ammonia um, systems or, you know, there's, there's obviously folks looking at methanol as well, right? You know, <clears throat> you do get a, a, a volumetric advantage there. But the question then becomes, and, you know, a lot of folks who talk about, um, you know, ammonia shipping or methanol shipping are, are still using internal combustion engines, right? And, and the reason that's kind of important is before we get to reformers and uh, we need to, you know, talk about fuel cell deployment. And, and that's that's a real option. But... We're, we're talking about a series of technologies that potentially have efficiency gains and cost declines at the same time, which, um, you know, like if, if, if we get higher performance fuel cells, you know, you're capturing more of the energy, you know, the potential energy out of the, the kilogram or whatnot that you're using. And, and therefore you're powering the vessel with notionally a lower volume of held fuel, right? And, and that's, that's part of the game here is about designing these systems so that we're getting the efficiency gains across them. Um, but to, to your point, and I think, and I think this is the critical point that, you, that you're making, there are challenges here. And I think everybody is aware of kind of what those kind of broadly look like. Um, and, and part of the fun, you know, of, of, you know, doing our job here is that we get to talk to people who are, you know, collectively part of solving this, this system problem. As to, as to specifically, will pressurized storage be, you know, like limited to certain use cases? I, I think it depends. But, you know, in some pl- cases, it, it won't be the choice. In some cases, it will be, uh, you know, a preference for maybe liquefaction, depending on cost sensitivities and other things. But also, you know, you may see carriers come into play. And, you know, this is where, especially for this sector, I, I think, we're in a much earlier phase of development and deployment than, than most people probably think, but that's why it's interesting. And that's why, you know, when, when people make projections about X, Y, or Z um, solution emerging and whatnot, there's, there's an awful lot more going on behind this. And there's an awful lot more dependencies in system than just the storage tank or just the fuel cell. It's, it has to be everything coming together to, to kind of solve these solutions. And then, I, I honestly, I think it just becomes pretty apparent which solution works for, for, for which use case pretty quickly. And, and that's, that's going to be something that changes probably a little bit over time, but it is a challenge. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was only going to actually just sort of say to Andrew here, I mean, you know, in some senses, this is sort of, um, you know, part of what um, Mo and uh, Michael talked about on the deep dive that we did with Biotech, right? I mean, this is part of the logic of saying, look, you can have a distributed decentralized solution that gives you that ability to produce on site and volumes. And if you can find a different commercial alternative that's cheap, cheaper to move by road, you know, then, you know, finding companies and uh, storage solutions that allow you to 
take advantage of the fact that there is that super low source of hydrogen that you can produce elsewhere and then uh, and then being able to transport it in the most efficient um you know from a cost and or i guess a broader economic place from a to b right i mean that i guess is the is the point of having a sort of a hedge strategy which you know companies like Beartech have talked about or or am i wrong i mean it, it sort of feels like that's sort of the theme that mo's talking about yeah, no, and I mean, I think that's that's right on. Thank you, Chris, for doing uh, my pitch job for me. But I, uh, I think from a strictly from a functionality standpoint, you know, the high pressure tube trailers that you know, like Biotech uses, means that we can transport you know per payload three times more than you know, comparatively speaking, in a steel tube trailer, and you know that allows us to lower transportation costs, maximize driver productivity, and, you know, lower emissions uh, associated with the distribution chain. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there are, there are, there is also a component of that sort of localized and distributed nature that uh, using high pressure transport the way we do allows us to reach customers and communities that typically aren't, aren't located <laughs> near a centralized or large scale hydrogen resource, right? So, I think it it offers a number of different uh, opportunities. Well, come on, as a, as a final one before we let you off, Andrew, what do you think about when you think about disruption in this space? You know, are you thinking about things like, um, you know, solid state storage? Are you thinking about liquid organic? Are you thinking about, you know, hydrogen carriers? What's your, you know, when you're thinking about disruption in the storage space, what is it that your mind's going to? Yeah, no, well, uh, what I was getting at is more that, when I said disruption, I meant mostly like where are the biggest opportunities in the in the distribution chain that you guys are are uh, looking at from where from where I sit, I think that Patrick has pointed out exactly exactly one of the the biggest items here, which is that there is no existing distribution and you know chain or, or network or or market out there, and there's no established access. For, for hydrogen to a lot of different parts of, for instance, the United States. There's just a lot of markets, a lot of regional markets, a lot of local markets that you cannot access hydrogen on a one-off basis or it's extremely expensive to get it to your community or to your, to your market. So I think building out distribution networks that allow and technologies that allow that kind of you know, localized supply, I guess there's just a lot of different holes in the distribution network that need to be patched. And I think uh, I think there are a lot of companies in that space and looking to find solutions there. So for us, that looks like generating the hydrogen locally, distributing the hydrogen locally, and driving down costs for off-takers and customers um, in communities and in areas that are typically underserved or or previously did not have access to to consistent hydrogen supplies. So I, I, I tend to agree with you guys that there's a, there are a lot of opportunities across the entire distribution sector. You know, it will be interesting. And I think one of the big things as well, which we haven't touched on, but, you know, we'll have to pick up another time is the regulatory aspect. You know, we're not used to in most markets, um, you know, U.S. maybe being one exception, large amounts of hydrogen being moved by road in any substance, to be honest. So one of the things that was going to be really interesting for 2022 and really for the next few years is, how various regulatory bodies and groups deal with increasing amounts of hydrogen moving, you know, and actually, you know, how people could potentially learn from mistakes that other sectors made. You know, I, I remember, and then this is maybe a final thought for me, I remember the one of the big issues the lithium-ion battery industry made in New York is that they didn't engage with the fire department early. And actually it was a requirement of the um, buildings and regulations um, bodies in New York City 
that the fire department had to sign off on any new equipment going into buildings. And most of the fire department in New York for a long time said, well, look, we don't really know how to treat a lithium-armed battery fire. And there's all sorts of issues with it inside a high-rise building in the middle of an area like Manhattan and how we can get trucks to it, what kind of chemicals and gases might come from it, and just generally a need to train first responders. Uh, and so that set back that market by quite a long time. I think if the hydrogen industry is careful and it can look at examples like that and learn from it, um, it'll make a huge difference. But if we don't get that right, we don't engage with those communities first and those key stakeholders early. And to be fair, if governments don't resource them, which is the very unglamorous thing, if governments don't resource health and safety executives, um, fire brigades, planners, so that they have the people to learn about hydrogen and then to be able to help businesses put these um, you know, products into the market, um, then we're not going to get the deployments we want. And frankly, it doesn't matter where we can create innovation through new technological um, discoveries in in labs or even in corporate uh, research centers if there isn't the regulatory and political will to deploy them and if there's concern around how these things work because communities don't get it and they're not and they've had they have bad experiences we're going to have so many more problems going forward so I, I think in some sense those are the big things that we probably didn't talk about enough but I think are going to be key to the transportation of hydrogen story I Definitely don't disagree, and I think we'll put a pin in it for next time, guys. This has uh, been an exciting first episode of 2022, so thanks, guys, for, uh, for you know, all of your input. <laughs> well, look, that this year the we'll... pedestrian uh, <laughs> conclusion to our podcast of all time. Thanks for your input. <laughs> well, yeah, hopefully we'll actually get to do this in person, guys. We've got to make it happen. Live, live recording 2022 committed on the on the on the live recording sounds like a plan. sounds like a plan guys and that does it for us today at everything about hydrogen a huge eah thank you to Jorn Helga Dahl global director of sales and marketing distribution and infrastructure at Hexagon Purus for joining us on the show today and thank you as always to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. As you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Bye.